Welcome back to the Agnes London podcast. This week I'm speaking to Hugo from Lowly Food all about his research-backed low emission recipes. I hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you so much, Hugo, for coming on my podcast. No problemos. Um, so you are from Lowly Food. Yes, that yeah? is correct. Is the name you've gone for now? Yeah, it's many people are like Lowly Foods. It's singular, so Lowly Foods, you said it correct. Yeah, Bordeaux. good, good. Um, so when we last met, you were just in the beginning stages of launching your Lowly yeah. Food box. Yeah. Um, I think you were just running a test and yes. getting a few first few customers on board. First few customers, yes. Yeah, so... Yeah, that seems like so long ago, but it seems to have gone so fast. It's like crazy. Yeah, um, this year has flown. Yeah, I know. It's like a ridiculous year. Well, Lowly Box, to give your listeners some kind of like context about it, is like a zero waste, low emissions recipe box. So it's essentially exactly the same as HelloFresh, Gusto, or any of those like recipe boxes you have. Um, but the idea is that instead of that mountain of plastic that you get with the boxes, that you have reusable containers and all of the recipes are designed uh, to lower your carbon footprint and um, we pick up and reuse all the packaging for the next time so it's designed to ideally be the easiest way for you to like eat as low impact as possible mm-hmm. and so how did i come up with that idea so there's a bit of a weird journey to that idea um me personally i'm kind of like a very strange data nerdy kind of type of individual who's kind of environmentally focused um and much to the uh, distress of my friends who are kind of thinking about, okay, what bizarre things are Hugo going to come up with now? What kind of numbers is he going to spout out with us? So I always um, have been very interested in trying to understand what I can personally do to live like a theoretically low impact life, um, but still like exist in the modern life. Mm -hmm. So I think you see like a lot of people nowadays who are like i want to live like a really low impact climate lifestyle and they'll go off the grid i didn't want to do that because i still wanted to i still enjoy modern life i still interacted with my friends i still want to live like um you know in london you know i still want to see my mates and i was i was very interested in understanding like okay i want to live this lifestyle but what can i do to mitigate like my modern lifestyle make it like the best possible it can be and so I started researching all the things like okay transport what should I do and you know I I started cycling and then energy it was getting renewables and flying I was kind of cutting down on and then around like about three or four years ago my one of my friends who knew I was like doing this kind of process like he got me a book um, by a a professor in University of Lancaster called uh, Mike Berners-Lee and he's actually fun fact of the day is Tim Berners-Lee's brother who is the person who invented the internet uh, so oh, they're, wow. they're very like yeah. uh, amazing family has somehow come up with all these like very brain box kids but he wrote a really interesting book called um, How Bad Are Bananas which I'm sure you probably really s- want to read you that you should definitely read it it's yeah. really good so I, I'm kind of scared it will make me like just want to stop doing everything so it's really good because um, it does it it basically, uh, so for those guys who don't know what the book is, it basically um, provides uh, an A to a Z, basically, approach of, like, how bad things are for the planet. Yeah. So it literally starts off with, um, I can't remember, something like sliced bread, and it goes all the way through stuff like cars, flying to, like, kids, and then it also, in between that, has, like, stuff around food. And the reason it's called How Bad Is Our Bananas is because... 
Mike Wendersley, he did some consulting work for a supermarket chain up in the north called, um, I can't remember the supermarket chain's name off the top of my head, but it's one of these big supermarket chains up in the north. Um, and somebody kept on asking him, oh, but how bad are bananas for the planet? Because they were yeah. really worried and they were getting lots of questions from their customer being like, you're importing these bananas, how bad are them? So that's why it's called that. But anyway, this book was amazing because it kind of set out all of these things that I've been thinking about and saying like, okay, this is X bad, this is Y bad. But also, you know, throughout the whole book, you know, I was, I was getting this massive theme around like food. Yeah. And it's something I hadn't really even thought about at the time. It was something that I'd kind of was just, not even really on my radar. I was just like, I was kind of a foodie and I was thinking, you know, of mitigating all these other aspects, but I hadn't really even thought about food. And so this book led me to kind of think about that. And I started doing more research into, you know, the food aspect and how that impacts the planet. And after doing lots more research, you know, I was kind of astounded by actually how much that impacted the planet. And so, you know, Right now, it's estimated that uh, agriculture in general, it, it contributes to global greenhouse gas emissions, roughly about just under a third of global greenhouse gas emissions, Yeah, um, which is pretty astounding if you're thinking about living like a quote unquote environmental life and you're not doing anything about your diet because it's a massive impact on the planet. So I was thinking, OK, well, this is incredible information that I didn't really have before. Why is no one, you know? else talking about this you know why is no one else like giving measurable insights about how i should do my day-to-day or or change my diet in order to impact the environment as low as possible and so i kind of came up with this fun idea about like i was thinking you know weird people like myself are going to be very interested in reading those research papers they're going to be they want to get to the nitty-gritty and that's where all the like the information is and it's really synthesized and really great forms but majority of people are not going to do that they don't want to go to like oxford journals and read these really long academic tests i thought okay if we if i really wanted to get this message out to people what is the best way that i could show people okay here's actually the impact of your diet and like here's what you should be doing um in order to mitigate that and you know I thought the easiest way to showcase that to people was to create recipes mm. that would showcase like, okay, this is theoretically the best thing you could possibly eat. And this is what you should be eating. And so do it in a fun, engaging way so that people weren't feeling like this kind of negative approach of like, you shouldn't be eating that. You shouldn't be eating this. You shouldn't be eating that. It's more like, here's some recipes that you should, you can eat. Yeah. They're really fun, engaging, they're easy. And um, by doing, eating this, you're going to, save this amount of carbon and this is the the breakdown of each ingredient and this is why this is good nice motorbike in the background um that's uh this is why this is good and this is why this is this is good etc and and show like a breakdown of ingredients to show why you're eating this recipe and more and most importantly why you're eating this recipe at this time of the year yeah um and so I know this is a very long-winded explanation no, of, no. of why, uh, how the box occurred. So I, I started on that idea and basically wanted to create like a, like I created a blog site with recipes yeah. in that manner. So I, I basically, I'm a amateur chef, mm-hmm. amateur, I would say, very big stress on amateur <laughs> chef. Um, and I- cre- Do you enjoy the cooking side of I, it? I do. It's, uh, it is, um, 
it was it was relatively stressful when uh, when we were getting into the box kind of stuff because you would have to come up with like four recipes a week. Yeah. And that is stressful because you're like, so there's a lot of things around like recipes for blog sites and there's recipes for like boxes, uh, like ingredients that people yeah. need to use. That there's a there's a level of like. Um, like accuracy accuracy that yeah. you need to give so like in a recipe for like a blog site you can say oh this pinch of that or this pinch of that yeah. in like food boxes you have to really be accurate and not only that but you have to be very mindful of the recipe steps um and the timings in general are very important to people so people who are getting those recipe boxes they normally are pretty short on time so they don't want recipes that are over 40 minutes or something like that they want relatively quick recipes so there's a definite there was a definite increase in stress from just doing the blog site to getting into the box stuff which uh i'm not entirely sure by the end of that i i i thoroughly enjoyed doing the recipes but i do in general enjoy recipes and i i like um creating i'm very creative in terms of that kind of mentality i like building things um so i was doing i was doing this blog site but I hadn't come up with this idea of a box yet. And um, in January, I, I decided to launch this this um, launch this blog and kind of was expecting about two or three people to go on the site and that'd be the end of it and me just call it a day. Um, and, you know, actually a lot of people were quite interested in it. Um, I thought maybe a few people would be interested in like the kind of data side, but a lot of people were like, wow, we've never seen something like this before. It's really cool. Yeah. Like, um, I really like your approach here. This, I've never seen anything like that. Um, so that kind of got my brain juices flowing a little bit. And I was like, okay, but what's theoretically the next step that I could do to make it as simple as possible for people to eat like sustainably? Uh, so my mission was always like, it's much better to get small changes out of a large amount of people than massive changes out of a small amount of people. Definitely. And so I really wanted to make it as easy and simple and as accessible as possible for people to adopt so that they so that people had really kind of no excuse to say oh you know i, I don't want to jump on that I, they were like they should have no excuse to jump on it because it was super easy it was like tasty and um it could it could you know fill all those blanks that other services may not have um and kind of not come out at the angle of like pressurizing people, it was more like, hey, look, this is awesome. You should check this out. So I thought, okay, what's the next easiest step to do that? And that's where the recipe boxes came out as an idea. So I was thinking, okay, if you provide all of these ingredients to customers with the recipes and guarantee that those ingredients are like the best for the, the planet, um, then that's like a really simple way for someone to say, I've got a really busy working schedule and like work-life balance but actually I still have time to be environmentally friendly on my, on my cooking because I have lowly box there. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's got my back when it comes to all of this stuff because it, um, it ticks all those boxes. Um, so that's kind of the journey that I had with it. And, you know, when we last spoke was around February, March time or something. Yeah. I think it was in the spring. Yeah. So in springtime, I was like, I basically had come up with this idea and I was like, okay, I should try and test this out some ways, see if somebody's interested in this, see if people like wanted are actually theoretically like this idea, you know, because I like the idea, but I'm weird. So uh, <laughs> um, 
I basically wanted to test that assumption somehow. And so what I did was like I posted on a couple of like London Facebook groups, like um, specifically ones focused on zero waste and sustainability. Like this is the idea. Just gave like a, um, a, a kind of elevator pitch about like what the idea was and then put a link to like a sign up to say, hey, if anyone wants to sign up for this service, here's the link. And um, and yeah, and so I, I kind of, I was umming and ahhing about posting these on these different Facebook groups. I was like pretty nervous about it to, to say the least because I hate doing anything like that. I hate like putting stuff out and being like, somebody being like this is crap hate this yeah. stop it i mean you must know like it's that it's daunting it's to put stuff out there daunting yeah. to say the least and especially when i know you must know this from like kind of your side when you put so much effort and time into thinking about that and creating something and to put it out there and someone to say oh i don't like that it's yeah. like that's like crushing so i think that's why i'm always in or of your kind of stuff because you're you're creating something with your so with like literally so personal and then to even put that out there is like that must be incredibly daunting i find i well, i personally would be super daunted by that yeah it is quite daunting i like i feel like as long as i'm i like it as long as like the people i care about like you know, it yeah, yeah i have like two or three people that i run ideas past before they're like go out there yeah but i mean like especially putting stuff out on social media it can be Mm. such like a fickle thing yeah for sure you know you can like really build something up put it out and then it gets no engagement and no response it's super frustrating i well i personally have like a real i don't know i have a real love hate relationship with social actually i have a real hate hate relationship with social media to be honest because like i feel that exactly yeah is that you know, there's some things that you have put so much time and effort into doing and you've written this like incredible post or something like that and you've like, you put it out and it's something you really like believe in. I guess like zero engagement. And then you put like a photo of like something you haven't even tried about and you're just like filling in the days and it gets like shh, just tons of engagement. And you're like, I just don't understand. Yeah. Like what the hell is this going on yeah. here? I feel the same when I pay for professional images yeah. and when I just take something with my iPhone. I know, man. I'm like, I've spent money on this. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, like this, like I've spent like hours, like, like you know, framing this, making it really nice and paying someone to come in and then the, you're like, you take like a rubbishy photo with your like iPhone and it just gets more engagement. Yeah. I read something recently, it's massive side tangent. I read something recently that it's like, um, people actually engage more with things that look more relatable or like yeah. so they're kind of like it's more like personal side which i find like bizarre because i always like in the grand scheme of things i am very low down on like social media status like the pretty low in terms of the social media rankings i'm very very insignificant and you always look to those guys who are like relatively significant to be like, I should probably, you know, try and do something similar vibe to them yeah. to try and get more followers or get more likes. And But then what you read, it, like, on other sites is completely counter to that, but they somehow managed to crack the code of getting amazing engagement. I don't know. And it's a random tangent, but... I don't know what the secret is either. But anyway, so that, that kind of whole fear of, like, um, I'd invested in this idea, I thought about it, and I was pumped about it and i didn't want to get deflated um so i posted on these facebook groups and i was like 
I was kind of expecting nobody to yeah. to do. I was like, if three or four people sign up, I'll do it and I'll do a test and we'll see what happens. And then, like by the end of the day, eighty people had signed up, which oh is like goodness. crazy. Eighty people, yeah, eighty people. So I was like, all in the London area. All in the London area. Yeah. Um, actually, oh, that's probably a lie. There was probably about ten people who'd signed up who were outside of the London area. I don't know why. Don't know how they managed to get to that because they were yeah. all London groups. Um, some people went like Wales and stuff like that. It was very crazy. Um, but I was like, okay, I've hit a nerve here. There's something that people are interested in here, so I've got to do it. So I, at this point, I was like, reality's kind of set in a little bit. I kind of need to do something. Um, so then, literally the next week, I sent out emails to these people who signed up, and I was like, look this is what we expect. Like, it's going to be super like MVP, super like dirty. And those people who don't know what MVP is, it's minimal viable product. It's basically like a very early stage product. Um, and I was like, it's going to be dirty. Like there's not going to be any ways that you can order. You're going to have to do this. And I'm going to give you these kind of choices. And um, it's going to be like pay as you want. So it's like you, you have to pay as much as you think the box is worth. Yeah. And I did that kind of surreptitiously to basically see what I could price the box at. Mm-hmm. And so um, after that, like 80 people got whittled down to about 50 people because like 30 of them didn't respond. And then I sent out some type forms and I was like, blocked out a calendar for a week. And I was like, choose your delivery spots and choose your initial recipes. And and I was like, okay. And at that point I had like orders. And I had absolutely zero plans like i was like i had all of this stuff in the bank like people had committed to getting a box delivered and i had absolutely zero idea about did you how have to... any suppliers at this point absolutely zero suppliers <laughs> like absolutely zero suppliers so i was like i was really kind of winging at this point because i was at this moment in time i was thinking i can't lose the momentum so if i go back and i work out all the logistics around this I'm going to lose momentum and people are going to get disinterested and then yeah. maybe something else might take their fancy or whatever. So I was like, okay, just keep that momentum going and we'll figure our stuff out later. Just like we were saying before we go on, on uh, recording, you know, you were saying you like to kind of shoot, you know, yeah. a- and ask questions later, which yeah. I think is the way people should go about it. Like, yeah. Um, I mean, not everything works, not everything that, way, works but, that way. Um, not everything works that way. For me, yeah, I find jump and then jump and then work things out yeah. later because I, well i think if you're doing something like in a heavily regulated space yes you need to do that but most of this time you'll learn things by just doing that like yeah. you, even with all the best planning in the world you're never going to figure out certain things yeah. and i think that's part of an advantage of being a small business as exactly. well as you don't have to go through five years of testing before a product ends 100%. up on the market you can turn something around in 24 hours a week however exactly. however long it can take you to put it together and realistically at the end of the day if i hadn't delivered a box to people you know what was i going to lose i was going to lose face and saying like to these people that had signed up for a box um like oh he hasn't delivered this but at the end of the day i wasn't going to lose anything yeah. you know i was just, i just wouldn't have delivered yeah um so definitely there are certain things that you should plan for. I'm not advocating that, but I think in general, trying to figure stuff out on the go. Um, but anyway, so after that, I had to find out how to logistically make it work. Um, yeah. And that was a whole 
process of figuring out, okay, I delivered all these boxes to people, but I delivered it on my personal cycle, which was definitely not enough for like more than three or four boxes on a go. And like, I needed to figure out where to get supplies from because at that point I was getting supplies from like local farmer's market. And then by the end of the week, those supplies were like pretty much going off. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I need to batch these into some way that um, they don't go off. Or if I have uh, certain things, I'm going to have to maybe do certain delivery days, etc. And so at the end of that week, which was incredibly stressful, but um, exciting week. Like I kind of had some understanding of like what people would pay, where logistically I should get stuff from and what were the like real things that I needed to get right. Um, And there was a lot of massive mistakes that I made. Um, But the main takeaway from that week was that people really liked it. Yeah. Um, And so I was like, okay, well, I should try and make this work. Um, And yeah, and then like a process of like essentially just ever evolving that business until yeah until it got to a stage where it was too unwieldy to like handle and it's something we can probably talk about later but ultimately yeah so um something that i really wanted to ask you having like seen your stories and seen what you're up to as well is Mm. obviously um your boxes were low carbon emission and they're all seasonal Mm. produce yeah um, and I know, obviously, you were London-based. So how easy was it to find suppliers yeah. in this area? Like, how yeah. easy was it? I mean, obviously, like, like I've been in the supermarket before and been walking around and we've been like, let's see what's, what's actually comes from the UK. Yeah, and there's such pretty, a small percentage very, very of it. Small percent. So how easy was it to find, like, variety mm. and suppliers it's, near this area? So I would say it's very tricky, but that is not because there's not suppliers. So it's very, it was very tricky for me because or like small businesses. And I'll give you a re- understanding of why that is. Um, so when I started this, I had absolutely zero understanding of how like the food supply chain actually works. Yeah. Um, and now I have a pretty decent understanding of how it works. Um, but in general, um, the food you're getting at the supermarket has gone through so many different stages. So let's say, for example, let's take potatoes. Potatoes are a really good example. So potatoes you'll get in Sainsbury's, for example. Or actually, no, potatoes you'll get in your local um, independent supermarket. Yeah. Just one of those boxes, you'll see just loose potatoes. That has gone through so many stages to get there. So first stage you'll have is you'll have a farmer growing those potatoes, okay? Um, they'll be grown to a certain standard, certain certification, that's red tractor or you know organic or whatever and then what happens after that is a person called a packer buys those and this doesn't happen the whole time this is the majority of the time so a packer is somebody who buys literally fields they go to a farm they say we will buy your field of potatoes so when that harvest is ready we will get all of those potatoes and so there we're talking literally tons and tons of potatoes and then they what they will do is they'll take those potatoes they'll ship them to their packing facility. Um, there's a, basically a, a few in the UK. There's probably about three packers in the UK who then process all those potatoes. They wash them, they then package them, and they put them in storage. So all of the potatoes that you have in, for example, 
February, March, etc. Those are not produced in February, March. They are stored for a long period of time in massive storage containers in like these big packing facilities. And then after that, it will, those potatoes will go to one of two areas. They'll go either direct to wholesalers. Wholesalers are people who buy from packers, but they don't buy, they'll buy tons, but not to the level of like fields. Yeah. So they'll buy like, hey, we want five tons of potatoes, but we want them in five kilo boxes. You know, so we want them to be able to sell like to consumers or yeah. we want them to sell to businesses to sell to consumers. So the wholesalers will buy that. And then the wholesalers will sell to the supermarkets who say, okay, we want to buy um, 20 kilos of potatoes this week, deliver it to us on a Monday because we last week we sold out of them. And then those go onto the shelves as five kilo boxes and us as a consumer will buy, okay, we want to buy a five kilo box of potatoes. So throughout that whole stage, there's just, it's just like from, is there's no such thing as like in that process, like a farm to supermarket. It's, yeah. it, it doesn't exist. It's like, it's just like, there's a huge, huge like inequality of like where the, the produce travels. And even if we're talking um, big supermarket chains like Tesco's or stuff like that, they may have direct access to farms, et cetera, where they're still using like big guys like packers who will like aggregate stuff. Because, for example, um, Tesco's will want potatoes all year round. Yeah. But they won't want to have to manage, like, you know, the storage of these things here, et cetera. They'll want to source their potatoes from somebody who really has, like, a good understanding of, okay, we need to get them from Netherlands this time of the year. Or we need to get them from Italy this time of the year. And that also, you know, in some cases, they do have direct relationship with the farm. But in most cases, they don't. And definitely, at smaller business level, these smaller businesses are priced out of going direct to farm because if you think about it, it makes complete sense. If I'm a farmer, I don't want to sell five kilos or I don't want to sell 20 kilos to this shop, 20 kilos to this shop, 20 kilos to this shop. I want to sell my field of potatoes. So unfortunately, that direct-to-supermarket model doesn't really work in a large scale um, in most farms. Now, there are um, farms close to London and in the UK that do that model. Um, They're smaller farms and they work on a more kind of holistic um, permaculture kind of style of produce where they produce like a range of things and they'll produce much smaller quantities. now, still, unfortunately, unless you're paying certain quantities of things, you will not be able to deal with those people. So if I'm me or you want to say, hey, you know what? I really like um, I really want to get my sustainable food and I really want to get um, my boxes of vegetables from this farm. You can't just go to that farm and say, hey, you know what? I want to buy 20 kilos of well actually I want to buy two kilos of your cabbage because they're just gonna be like no that doesn't make sense to us because it's too much added too much admin too much work for them to do um so they they don't do that they normally will sell normally in like kind of veg box schemes where they'll dedicate what is in the box that time of the year um and they will give that to certain select like consumers but if you're a small business like me or like the box was Unfortunately, it's incredibly difficult to find suppliers because 
um, a lot of people don't deal with certain volumes that you need. They're either dealing with massive volumes or tiny volumes where they want to just have a direct-to-consumer relationship with that veg box model. So there's this weird sweet spot model in between where it's like, hey, we want to get X amount of stuff, but we can't hit your order minimums of like 200, 300 pounds. Now, I think what's incredibly encouraging from the stuff that I've seen is that there is a massive amount of farms in the UK that are are committed to doing small scale permaculture farming um, on a level which is amazing. You know, there's like some really cool guys who are up and coming who are and, you know, just well established farms as well that are doing amazing things and are providing food not on a com- like a really massive commercial scale, but on a scale that just makes sense for the local environment. Yeah. And what, n- how those farms are normally backed is through cooperative buying schemes. So that's basically where a consumer like me or you will say, we are going to guarantee that we're going to buy from this farm this amount of produce this year. Mm-hmm. And so that farm has the understanding that... Um, they're going to get that amount of capital in and they know that they're working with that amount of money and they're not going to go like and just need to sell that whole field of field of potatoes because they have that assurance that consumers are going to buy from them. But those those schemes say that you have to be flexible with the farmers. You can't just like demand like I want um, yeah, strawberries in February, you know. Yeah, and I guess the kind of people that are buying into schemes like that are much more aware of what's seasonal mm. and that they want seasonal veg. Exactly. So, you know, they're not going to expect strawberries in January, yeah. February. They're going to expect more of their, like, root vegetables and things like that. Exactly. Um, so I think it's incredibly... Cu- that I think, you know, my there is a lot of stuff around London. There's a lot of cool guys who are doing... Small-scale farms are doing really cool stuff. And, you know, um, if people listen to this podcast want to get some really great produce from like small scale farmers around London, I would look at a scheme called Growing Communities. Um, This is a scheme um, which is primarily run in Stoke Newington. Um, It's a it's like a veg box scheme, but they um, basically set up veg box schemes around different areas of London with the focus being that they source highly stringently from farms based very, very close to London um, and who meet their criteria of being, you know, organic and uh, very much like in that permaculture vibe. And they provide uh, quality ingredients. And if you don't want to be part of their veg box scheme, they also run, they also have lots of their producers at their, I think it's a Saturday farmer's market, which is in Stoke Newington. Um, but there's also um, a lot of the producers that are on their scheme also do farmers markets in other parts of London on Saturday. So I'd check that out if you guys, if if anyone is interested in understanding what I would say is probably yeah. the best that you consumers can get in yeah. London. Um, um, understanding where our food comes from is such a minefield. It's a massive minefield. Um, I'd say the biggest minefield. Um, and... So I, so for me personally, the biggest what the hell moment or the biggest like crazy moment for me was understanding, you know, the impact around seasonality. 
So, you know, understanding where your food comes from is incredibly important when you're looking at stuff that's imported. But it's even more important when you're thinking about local stuff as well. Um, and super important when you're thinking about seasonality. Um, and why I say this is because if you're eating things out of season, um, that's not necessarily bad, okay? You know, we all do have things where we're like, we maybe in, in March, you know, where traditionally, March to April time, where traditionally the UK is like the lowest level of um, you know, produce available, it's okay to eat imported stuff. That's not bad for the planet, and, but it's important to understand the provenance of where your food comes from. And why I say that is because in recent years, there's been a lot of discussion around, you know, um, food miles being really, really bad and local cuisine being the best possible. And that has shifted uh, supermarkets to say, we really need to showcase British cuisine or British produce in times of the year where it shouldn't be there. And what I mean by that is like having produce that is traditionally not grown in the UK at all, like for example, in February, um, be on the shelves in February. And this is down to farmers in the UK being pressurized because consumers want certain things at that time of the year to grow things artificially. And that means in heated greenhouses or under like really... um, really strenuous conditions where they can control everything and this requires a huge amount of energy and a huge amount of uh negative impact on the planet and so for example the the example i always always give is um on tomatoes because it's something that people always you know relate to and i'm sure you're aware of i speak about this quite a lot uh is that british organic tomatoes produced in march have 125 times worse impact on the planet than those produced in the summer. So if you're eating British organic cherry tomatoes in the summer, that's roughly around 400 grams of carbon uh, greenhouse gases per kilogram of like uh, tomatoes. And that's pretty good. That's pretty decent. But if you go to eat those in March, they're roughly about 50 kilograms per, per kilogram. And that's roughly, that's, that's basically on par, if not worse, than most meats. So it's basically the same as beef yeah. in terms of their impact. Um, so, And that's purely down to the fact that they are produced in a heated greenhouse. Because if you're producing uh, tomatoes in March, you have to require so much energy to heat that greenhouse, lots of light to uh, account for the different, um, different light levels at that time of the year. And so I would always, always recommend people that if they're going to eat tomatoes in March, they should get that from over, ab- abroad. So Spain has an amazing growing season in March and, you know, importing um, tomatoes at that time of the year is much, much, much better than eating locally British tomatoes. So this is weird dichotomy of like, you want to eat local, but you also don't want to eat local, not seasonally, because that is so bad. And I would always say, choose the imported thing. Like a, there was a study recently done by, I think it was Exeter University that said um, that they, they studied a range of products, a range of like um, vegetables um, and all out of season vegetables in uh, produced in the UK and then in their imported varieties. And on average, the imported varieties were 10 times better 
for the environment than the ones grown in the UK out of season. So it's just another level of complexity right. that consumers yeah, don't get. That's it's, crazy. it's it's like yeah. um, it's challenging because you don't have this information as a consumer. No, you really don't, and we don't learn it a lot. You don't. That's unless the thing. like you're lucky enough that maybe you grow up and your parents have some space, exactly, and you have a veg patch or things like that. You don't learn it at all. And I really believe that like the health, you know, nature is very clever. Yeah. And the healthiest thing for us is what's in season. 100%. Because in winter, we want roasted vegetables. Yeah. We want, you know, root vegetables. We want stuff that's going to yeah. um, keep kind us of warmer. Yeah. yeah. Summertime, you want berries. You want lighter things. You want salad yeah. for the climate. And it just like not eating i mean i hold my hands up and say i don't eat seasonally you know, i know like, I, I think eat. i think if you eat like seasonally like 100 percent of the time i salute you because i don't think many people do it's yeah. an, it's pretty difficult to do but yeah but it makes total sense it does it makes total it sense it makes total sense but it's just you that is not reflected in our supermarkets 100%. and things like that but i also think it's it's challenging as well because you know we're sitting here saying all this stuff and like, you know, I hold on my hands and say like, I don't eat 100% seasoning as well. I try and be decent, but not to the extent where I'm doing things like I would say are amazing. Um, I think part of the problem is, is there's, you know, that education piece really needs to come in. So if you give consumers um, education around okay you can make this really delicious like root vegetable stew in the winter or actually you can do this like awesome stuff that you hadn't even thought about with all these amazing seasonal produce it becomes so much um better because consumers have the personally speaking from my point of view when i eat seasonal stuff it's when i have the most fun yeah because you know, if you're eating apples, or no, apples is a bad example because you can store them for a long time. But if you're eating like tomatoes, fresh tomatoes all year round, when like the British season of tomatoes comes around, you're like, oh, British tomatoes, pretty awesome. Yeah. If you haven't eaten like full, like really sweet British tomatoes all year round and you get to that July period and you have your first taste of tomatoes, it's amazing. Like it's yeah. awesome. And you get, you get so invigorated to like do all these new cool recipes, get in the kitchen and work with those tomatoes and do like this awesome new pasta that you hadn't done before. And like, likewise with the same thing with like winter, if you're getting in there and you're like, oh, you know, I know Brussels sprouts are kind of a Marmite like topic. Yeah, but, later. <laughs> yeah, I love Brussels sprouts. But like, if you get to like the winter and you're like, oh, like, oh, Brussels sprouts, I haven't had those for ages. And it's the same thing. You're like, wow, this is awesome variety of stuff. Whereas if you have it, all year round it kind of loses its like fun and appeal and so that's why i think there's some awesome like chefs and stuff and restaurants coming up in london especially at the moment that are doing some crazy awesome things with like seasonality um and it's like really exciting to see there's a lot of positives yeah we kind of find that at the moment because we try and like i'd say like 80 to 90 percent of our shopping is plastic free and we shop in the same supermarket every week so we don't eat a very very varied <laughs> diet yeah. so like occasionally we found like strawberries or raspberries exactly. in cardboard packaging oh my goodness they exactly. taste it's like amazing. the best things ever i choose them over like sweets or chocolate any day so nice yeah, but especially. that's just because i'm not they're a treat exactly I'm not used it's, to having them. it's not it's the same thing with like for example like you know pizza if you have you know if you had pizza every day you'd be like wow pizza sucks Give me a salad. Give me a salad. Yeah. But if you have, you know, the reason why people love like getting a pizza order is because they don't have it every day. Not everyone has like a pizza oven in their apartment. 
So it's the same principle there. It's like if you really abide by the seasonal principles, it's really fun. And, you know, part of my real long-term goals is to get like a cookbook together, God help me, whenever I get around to that, which really nails down on that seasonality approach, which is like, is going to give you that kind of a whole suite and information of like, hey, we've hit, you know, July, this is what is in season. Here's the amazing recipes you can try with this. And here's your like week of food that you should like, you can, you can, you can do. I think what's been really exciting for me is being able and being super fortunate to have um, my parents like have a place out in the countryside where I can go at the weekends and see the, some of the stuff that they're growing, which is amazing. Cause like when you're in London, you really don't get that. And sadly, it's just like, unless you're one of those super fortunate people who has an allotment, which I'm desperately trying to get, yeah. but it's like a waiting list of about bajillion people. I think they're like a lifetime waiting it's list. It's literally, yeah. yeah, it's like crazy. Well, why would you ever give up an allotment if yeah. you've got one? I mean, it's like, you can have like wine in the sun or like your allotment. Like, that's the dream basically, isn't it? Um, but yeah, we've gone on a massive tangent there. We but, definitely have. But hopefully that answers your, some, some of your questions that, that the there is some awesome places around London that you can get produce yeah. from. It's just, it's relatively tricky. Yeah. Can you, um, after this, can you send me some links to them so For I sure. can put them yeah, if well, people want to find them? Oh, definitely. And um, there are some really cool places as well that, you know, I'm trying to work with for next year to do like workshops in. Yeah. So um, I think part of that education piece around getting people more engaged in seasonal food is is having people visit places which are close yeah to that um so you know we're saying like we don't have a lot of access to green spaces here but how you but, but you know you have like a 30 40 minute train journey out into kent mm. and you're right in the heart of like the kent Garden growing yeah exactly yeah. and so part of um you know getting some of these relationships with some of these farms is that you know, I would love to next year start to offer kind of workshops where you're going down to the farm, you're seeing how it's grown, and then also being able to cook with the produce that's come from farm and say, here's the kind of stuff that you can do with this. Um, so, yeah, I think part of that education piece is getting people closer to where things are coming from and uh, can see that, like, coming into fruition because if you're always far away from the like how it's grown it's always going to be slightly a bit of a challenge to be like oh why shouldn't i have it all year round um because you don't really see how much effort goes into it and how much like time it takes to grow certain things like an aubergine or whatever um which have you ever seen like an aubergine as a small aubergine by the way like they look like an egg like that's why they're called eggplants in the the u.s I i did not know that they look like an egg they yeah. literally, like, they're white and they have, um, yeah, they look like an egg. Like, look it up on laptop. It's like, it's very weird. Oh, wow. Um, but it's, it's quite strange, yeah. yeah. So. so while we're on the topic of um, UK, yes. UK produce, yes. have a, I have a slightly controversial question to ask okay, you about good. a topic that we're all very, very sick love, of hearing love, about. Love. Um, but Brexit. Brexit, yes. Um, and uk fruit and veg is yeah. it is it going to be a advantage disadvantage are we going to have empty shelves yeah we're massive so i'm gonna give you a, a relatively well i'll give you a, a slightly more positive answer than the majority of people in the veg industry so i think in general it's going to be pretty bad like so the majority of uk veg 
is imported. Um, and that's not because, uh, you know, that's bad. It's because certain things just don't grow in the UK in certain times of the year. And that's what, what we were just saying. It's like, you know, in f- March, things we have to import things from Spain. That's just, it has to happen. And I would say that, you know, Spain is, it's, it's, very, it's very efficient to import produce from. So it's not actually a very bad thing to get stuff from Spain. But so there is going to be this huge discrepancy of like, we're not going to get access to the amount of stuff that we normally get access to. And there's going to be a huge demand on farmers. Now, I think that's bad for consumers in general. But what I think there is an opportunity in there for um, is British produce to come into the, fr- into, into, into the, into the light. Um, and so there's going to be massive demand for British produce. I mean, uh, huge, huge demand. So if anyone is thinking about setting up a farm, I'd set it up now. You know, because you're going to there's going to be a huge demand for excess stuff coming from the UK. And also there's potentially going to be a little bit of education by osmosis around stuff that isn't in season in the UK, Mm. which I think is kind of like a relatively weird positive angle because you're going to be like, oh, well, you know, in November, we're not going to have access to anything outside of just root vegetables. And so while I think that's kind of like a maybe a little bit of an evil approach to things, it might also serve to educate some people about like, okay, maybe I should stop thinking about eating that stuff as much as I do in that period of time because here's what actually we can, what is in supply now and isn't super expensive because what you're going to get is the produce that is going to come be imported is going to be incredibly expensive um, because of the tariffs, etc. Um so hopefully that gives you like positives and negatives. In yeah. general, I think it's going to be relatively negative because um, in general, a majority of stuff that we get is the demand is just not set up for yeah. um, for it. But looking on the bright side of things, because I'm kind of very anesthetized to anything Brexit now. <laughs> it's like, oh, another thing, like they've delayed it more. They've yeah. like, there's some other vote that is like failed. I'm like, oh God. Yeah. yeah come on now like it just seems like a parody definitely sick of hearing about yeah. it oh, but no. i am fascinated about the impact it will have it will have a massive our, impact. our stores um so let's move on yes this is turning out to be a very long podcast oh yeah i'm so sorry no, i, I talk for days so you're like <laughs> so ask me on. the box yes happened this year yes it the, happened and the box is no longer the box is no longer and why is the box no longer um so the box was awesome while it lasted uh the problem that with the box is financially i didn't have enough money to make it work um i had a huge demand for the box which is really encouraging which for me signals something of a wider kind of renaissance in in british like culture and also just in consumerism in general Mm -hmm. which is something i'll get onto later um is that people really were engaged with it people really wanted it they enjoyed it and i grew uh customers week on week and we were growing like at a rate of like 15 to 20 percent each week which was amazing it's incredible but with growth comes massive costs so you know um it's you know when you're delivering to 10 people it's okay to be able to deliver all of that by myself uh and you know pack all that stuff by myself and you know 
email people, etc. Um, when you get to start to go 100 plus orders, you just start to employ people. You start to get. Uh, you have to start to deal with producers who are, you know, giving you minimum orders of certain things, and you have to pay a little bit more to get that. But also producers who require payment on a certain schedule, but you don't get paid out until a couple of weeks later. So there's a whole cash flow issue. And so I got to the point where I had, I was really passionate about it and I really wanted to see it successfully. But I basically came to the point about, I think it was a month and a month and a half ago where I, I basically looked at the books or the financials and I was like, okay, we have X amount of months to like, until we go bankrupt. And so the next stage for me was with that business was to try and raise money. I wanted to raise money in order to bridge that like in between stage of like, growth issues with the cash flow um, and get to a, a wider audience. Yeah. But I sadly just, I didn't have enough time to raise that money with that, that kind of runway. And in order for me to raise that money, I would have had to free up my time more. So I would have had to employ more people to do jobs that I was doing in order for me to go talk to investors, like actually secure around and get it locked in. I just didn't have the money to do that. Um, so it was relatively bittersweet day when I kind of, well, it, was a, it wasn't a bittersweet. It was just a, a kind of crap day when I like had to kind of say, send out an email to people being like, look, we can't deliver anymore. I don't have enough money to do this. But it was also a really awesome day because I'm relative, I've been relatively entrepreneurial like my life. I've done like small businesses here and there, whatever. And I've never had as much engagement as I've had with any business other than Lowly. And when I said to people that I was going to shut the box down, I emailed those people. Like I had loads of people email me back being like, no, you can't shut this down. This sucks. Like I really want this to work and stuff like that. And it was like amazing to get that because it was like, wow, I created a business that actually people liked. Yeah. And, that, and that actually touched some nerves. People uh, have like a connection to People it had as a well. connection to, and you know, so it was, it was a sad day, but without me having, without unfortunately me having a decent amount of cash, I can't physically make that business a success um, with the money I currently have. Um, so sadly, the box is no more. That's not saying that it may not be again in the future yeah. if that, if the opportunity comes and I do somehow win the lottery, um, but uh, that may not happen anytime soon. Um, but until then, you know, I'm working on lots of things behind the scenes with Lodi to actually move it into another kind of business, which is less focused around something that's going to be financially hard for me to keep up, but more focused around the idea that we were speaking about before, which is like education and, um, providing people with the tools and the means that they need to make the right decisions when it comes to the climate, especially when it comes to food. And so hopefully in you know a couple of weeks, a month's time, you may see something, you know, a new launch of what Loli will be. But su- suffice to say at the moment, I'll keep it under wraps a little bit. But I'm really encouraged and want to see... Um, that vision that I set out at the beginning of like making it super easy for people to eat sustainably a reality. Um, and I think while the box quote unquote was a failure, um, 
I think it was massively beneficial in showing that there's demand for this and there's eagerness for people to want to learn how to do stuff right. Um, so yeah, we will see. <laughs> Sounds like you gained an incredible amount of knowledge though over Huge, the past yeah. year Huge. from it. So. Yeah, which I think is massively beneficial. And you yeah. know, if I was to go back, I would do it all again. Um, I would hopefully do it better and wouldn't have financial issues and uh and uh and then have to close the box but um i think to you know not to be cliche or anything to anyone who's listening but i would say if you have some desire to do something it's going back to that kind of idea of like jumping off and learning about it later is just do it and then you'll learn so much doing it that even if it does go wrong you will have learned so much more immeasurably um and so that's why i think it's awesome that you're doing like your stuff like completely full-time now focused on it like 100 is like um because you know through doing that you're going to just the amount that you're going to grow and get to the next stages is like it's going to be awesome so yeah hopefully i think with everything there's growing pains as well isn't 100%. there 100 um so what I would like to know is what advice you would give to consumers or your customers who have something yes. like your box that they believe in, they care about, it's yep. a small business or it's a startup mm-hmm. and they want it to succeed. What can they do? Yeah, so that is a good question. Um, I personally think the biggest help that you can give to small businesses like mine, yours, anyone else's is talk to people about it. Unfortunately, we don't have the big marketing budgets that like a big person, a big corporate has. Yeah. And we, we basically thrive on referrals or people's word of mouth. Uh, sadly, we don't have any cash to do anything else. So if you like a product, talk to people about it and get people to sign up to it as soon as possible. And also I would say, if you're invested in an early stage business, like if you're, if you're buying an early stage business and you want to refer somebody and you want to get somebody on board, talk to the people who start the business and say, look, I want to get these guys on board. Can you give me a discount code or something? Because those guys will be like, yeah, here, take it. Because they want to see people come to them and show and, you know, and bring more customers into the business. So don't be afraid to just like, you know, say, hey, look, I really love what you're doing. I'd love to get my office workers on. Is there any way you can get involved? Like, can maybe come down to your office, tell people about it or give a discount? Because people are willing to do that. Yeah. Like, um, well, I am anyway, because I'm weird. But um, I think most small business people want to feel like they want to get, get more customers. They want to feel engaged. So don't feel nervous about reaching out to those guys. Um, but yeah, it's probably bad advice, but... That's what I think that's good advice. I think like, yeah, I think like obviously you are passionate about talking about it. Like someone wants to talk to me about sustainability. Yeah. (laughs) Talk to them for ages. Well, for example, like somebody says like, um, hey, I really like would love to get uh, my office more involved in like um, being less plastic, bringing less plastic into the office. Would you want to do like a workshop showing people in the office? That may be like, like I would if, you know, that would be something that if I was doing would be interested in, you know, and it never hurts to ask somebody to do that, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Now, obviously, probably with you, you're probably slammed with about a million, bajillion things. So maybe not, but uh, 
other no, smaller businesses. That. <laughs> <laughs> Not that, Sam. Uh, we definitely do. Um, yeah, no, I think especially like, like you know, you've come on, you've um, talked a lot, you've shared a lot of knowledge. Like you have, you've learned a lot. Mm. Um, I know I've learned a lot through yep. my journey and like, for me, it's not just the product I want to share that knowledge with people and exactly. I feel like it's the same for you as well. Yep. Um, so yeah, you can definitely, there's definitely plenty of free ways you can support businesses as well by shouting about them. Shout about them, like literally talk to anyone you can about businesses. Like if you're like, if someone says, if yeah, just bring it up in as many conversations as you can. Be that champion in in like the workplace or in your friendship groups because realistically you know it's going back to that one thing we said before is you're not going to change things by having a small amount of people doing lots of things uh doing yeah a big amount of stuff is by lots of people doing small things so even if you think oh by me promoting this like you know sustainable or like small business is not going to do anything that's completely wrong i think you're going to do so much by like literally talking about it so don't think that that is like a tiny way to support a business. I think that's a very important way to support a business. Yeah. Um, if you don't mind me asking, how much did your boxes end up being in the end? For yeah. what, four recipes? So, well, no. So you chose, it was basically, so you could choose from like two or three recipes. Um, so in the end, so up until, so it depended on how many people you were cooking for. Mm-hmm. So uh, average box up until we had to change our prices was about uh, 25 pounds. Um, but we did double portions, so that it worked out as like 350 a meal. Wow. But that financially wasn't sustainable. Yeah. Um, so in the end, we had to change it to around uh, seven to nine pounds a meal, depending on what, uh, depending on how many people you ordered for. So obviously if you ordered for one person, um, it costs more to do the recipe uh, for, for us to package the recipe. Uh, then if you did like four people, it costs less. And like, I know people listening will think, oh, nine pounds for like a, a meal, that's expensive. I, I agree. I think it is expensive. Um, and that's the part of the problem that I had wrestling with the business is trying to make it so that people could actually afford to get on it without me going bankrupt. And like, the funny thing is like, I actually made zero money out of that. So there's this weird thing of, sadly, small businesses, you know, although they may seem like that is like a ridiculous thing to charge, I guarantee you any small businesses that are charging large amounts of money are not making much money. They're probably making cost price or like a little bit uh, more than, I'm sure you didn't charge for your time doing the research into the recipes and putting the re- recipes together. No, exactly. So if I had charged for, so I did cost that out. So if I had charged for quote unquote recipe development, etc., like that, which at the end we started to look at and see if I could like employ somebody to do the recipes, that would cost significantly more. And so that's part of the reason why I was like, mm, financially, yeah, we need to reevaluate. And so, um, that's why I think, um, sadly, veg boxes are a good way uh, for small businesses to work because veg boxes don't require as much manual input as like yeah. recipe boxes. Yeah. Sadly, with recipe boxes, what happens is 
you create a recipe and then you have to get with mine anyway we had to parcel all the spices into tiny little jars uh which was a nightmare uh, absolute nightmare never do that never do teaspoons into small jars oh my god that's crazy like i just remember like saturday mornings we'd have to get it i'd have to get in with my like sister who i employed in the end who was like five o'clock in the morning until like eight o'clock at night and we would just be literally just sat there with like teaspoons into these tiny jars of like cumin cumin turmeric turmeric and um and so that costs a lot of money like if you think about it it's the hours that you you pay to employ somebody it's the the jars that are reusable that you have to pay to do and and so all of these other recipe boxes that are quote-unquote making money sadly they're actually not like hellofresh is actually posting a loss but um they're making money because all of this stuff in them is really pretty much unsustainable yeah so they can do those kind of cost price they can do those pricing because they can shrink wrap all their like um their spices in plastic and they can they can do it on massive like scale at like huge refrigerated facilities where they employ like mass yeah. amounts of people to do this so sadly you know price and sustainability sometimes is a bit of an inflection point and that's what I'm really passionate about trying to solve in the future is making yeah. something accessible. It's it's very hard to tick all of those boxes. It is. And that's sadly, yeah, it is very difficult to yeah. tick all those boxes. So one last question. Am yeah, sorry, I've talked for ages. No, don't worry. <laughs> Am I right in thinking that your boxes were meat and dairy free? They were. So they were, com- they were vegan. Um, we had... I didn't advertise them as a vegan, but they were majority vegan. Is that because that was the most you know carbon friendly or so the decision to do that was because um plant-based diets are the most environmentally friendly like that's just fact like so if you go plant-based the research shows you cut out roughly 35 to 49 percent of your food's footprint so that's any study you read is like roughly about that much um and then after that you can cut if you cut out the majority of meats but go for like less environmentally uh, i mean better meats for the environment stuff like poultry pigs etc um you can cut out about 20 percent, and then if you do just pescatarian it's like 27 percent. so plant-based is the best now that being said um although i advocate people going plant-based I know it's not a sustainable choice for everyone. I know there's some reasons why people don't do that. And it's for, for some people, it doesn't make sense. And I'm not I'm not a person to say that this is what you should be doing. Yeah. I want to advertise options that you can do to make your, your life better. Yeah. So the idea was in the future, we may, with Lowly Box, we may have offered like... Um, potentially meat and dairy, maybe not meat, maybe fish. Um, and uh, maybe some dairy, um, although dairy actually is worse than some meats. So uh, it would have been challenging. So at, yeah. at the at the outset, I wanted to make it pure that it was literally just going to be the best. And then later down the line, I would have offered those options to people, but given shown that in a way that shows, okay, you can choose this or you can choose this, and this is actually better for the planet. Um, so giving them an option to say, understand their impact and say okay this week i you know actually i need to i want to eat fish but maybe next week i'll choose the plant-based one because i know it's better for the environment etc 
and not being that guy who says you're gonna eat plant-based the whole time because you have to um because while i think there's a space for that and i think that's incredibly beneficial there's a lot of guys in this space um currently who are doing a lot of advocating and like um uh, campaigning around this um i think personally my space is more around like trying to educate people to, to change rather than like forcing people to change yeah. um forcing is the wrong word but you know what i mean like advocating people to change yeah and um so you i guess that also made the box cheaper like i think there's a bit of a thing about like yes. being vegan or being plant-based is really it's expensive yeah but i mean i find that it actually saves me a lot of money yeah so it is cheaper you're right um sadly it didn't work out any cheaper with uh with us because of the um the labor cost but you're right it should be cheaper because yeah the diet in general so i personally am vegan and plant-based although only just recently transitioned to that i was before that i would say 99 percent vegan but now I'm, i i fully subscribe to plant-based diet um i'd say the benefits with going plant-based is that not only are you doing like a you know the best theoretically from the environment but it's also in the majority of the cases cheaper and it's also healthier and I would say that with like kind of asterisks because healthier if you do it right because yeah. there's a lot of um, stuff now coming out around like vegan junk food and, and things like that um, and um, you know it's not okay just to go vegan and then go oh okay I'm just going to eat a whole lot of mock chicken burgers like I'd say going fully plant-based it forces you to tr- to majoritively eat healthier although I would say that's kind of transitioning at the moment because as you say, there's a lot of vegan junk food. Yeah. So I'd and, say that I with mean, an like asterisk. Sugar is still vegan. Exactly. So. And also there's certain nutrients that you have to get from supplementation, which is very important. So that things like B12 you need to get from supplements. Um, but again, um, I'd yeah. So in general, I'd say like plant-based is, is cheaper. Yeah. Um, but you have to do it right. Yeah. <laughs> you have to cook a whole load of chickpeas. <laughs> a lot of beans and pulses. <laughs> a lot of beans and pulses. Like. Um. Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing so much knowledge. Sorry, I yeah. feel like I've learned a lot in the last hour. I, I feel like I've spouted a lot. <laughs> no, no, it's perfect. Um, where can people find you? Do you yes. still have the blog? Yes. Um, where can they wait yeah. patiently for future updates? So um, the new redesigned, new uh, re-envisioned like Loli is coming soon. Um, if you go to lolifood.com, there's like a you can see all the latest recipes and stuff that I make, which are seasonal and uh, low emissions and plant-based, um, hopefully tasty as well. Um, and also there you can subscribe to like newsletter and updates about when that comes, or you can just go straight to the source and go to my Instagram, which I've been quite lax on at the moment because I'm trying to, um, I had like a, a, uh, you probably needed a break after. Yeah, I needed a little break. Making spices from 5am. So I had like a little break from that, but I'm coming back strong. I've got lots of good posts coming. So I'd subscribe to that as well. I do um, lots of behind the scenes stuff there and plan is to get that. Yeah, as a place to share more of the stuff that's coming um, in a more digested format. But yeah, so check it out, lowlyfood.com or lowlyfood Instagram. 
Great. Awesome. And then my last question that I've asked everyone is what have you read or seen recently that's made you feel positive, so positive. uplifted about the future? So in general, I feel pretty positive about the future. Like I think in general, there's a lot of stuff like now with people being like negative. Mm. And I think there is huge amount of reason to be negative but i also think there's a huge amount of positivity uh to take away from like 2019 in general like 2019 wasn't great for a lot of reasons you know but 2019 was good for a lot of reasons as well like the amount that like um you know xr has you know uh motivated and like just come a movement and out of like basically a, a, a year old like kind of thing is like incredible yeah, that's, that's yeah. amazing like so for me that's super inspirational and like what you know Greta does is like it makes me feel very bad about my life because she's like 16 or what is it and like I'm doing nothing in, when I was 16 I was like doing absolutely yeah. <laughs> zero uh, so I think then that's amazing positive movement she's super positive but something that you know I read recently which i found like is kind of like a sums up why i feel positive is um there's a lot of people wanting to change you know there's a lot of positivity around um hey i need to do this to you know help the environment and um you know i think it was uh guardian telegraph or something like that or there's some kind of report which is showing that you know in europe especially um people are changing their diets, you know, and uh, people are changing the way they shop in order to, um, you know, impact the environment less. And that has never happened in the history of, like, human race so far. So we've had all of this, like, you know, we've had studies that have shown, like, okay, there's increasing concern about, like, uh, the environment. But in general, studies normally show that when it comes to, like, price differentiators, most consumers go for the cheaper thing, even if it's like worse for the environment. Yeah. Now we're seeing studies that are saying like people will actively choose things that are more expensive and better for the environment because they're consciously trying to do that. And stuff like meats demand in the UK is forecasted to go down by 4% next year because of um, people's concerns about the environment. So I think there's a huge amount of positivity. And so whilst I think it's important to keep an eye on like a nose to the grindstone and saying like, we need to get better, we need to do this, we need to do that. I'd be also like positive and say, people are getting the message, let's like celebrate that as well. Oh, maybe that's uh, me being naive. But <laughs> no, I think, yeah, it's, it's getting out there. So, <laughs> exactly. Great. Thank you so much. And no thank problems. you to um, Frequency London as well for letting us yeah, record much appreciated. in their room. Some yeah. very nice sultry jazz in the yeah. background. And as a well. bit of London street noise I know, as yeah. well in the background. <laughs> I like it. I thought it was like good, good ambiance. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, I'd be so grateful if you'd go ahead and share the episode or leave us a review to help other people find my podcast. You can also find out more about Agnes London at agneslondon.com or on social media, just at Agnes London. Thank you. See you next week.